0: I am frequently asked, what should board members know about compliance and the legal requirements under the anti-kickback statute, Stark Law, and False Claims Act? Well, hold tight and I will let you know.
1: Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views, and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob
0: Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host, well, today is part one of what board members should know about compliance, the Stark Law, and a kickback statute, and other key legal issues. And this episode is going to focus primarily on the structure of a compliance program and what you, as board members, should know about your organization's compliance program. Well, first off, let me start off and say. Congratulations on being a board member for a hospital system or another healthcare provider. And I'll probably use the word hospital in this episode, but if you're a board member of another healthcare provider, uh, you can insert your laboratory, home health agency, or what have you, because it generally applies to all types of healthcare providers. But especially if you are representing a tax exempt entity or a state entity. Uh, you are a community member uh, who has who has volunteered in order to provide a service to your local hospital, uh, to serve on the board, and most likely you do not have a medical background. Uh, you are a leader in business or a community leader, and healthcare has not been your focus. And some of the things that you are hearing. Uh, in your board meetings are going to be strange, and it gets really stranger when I start talking about the legal requirements under things like the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law, because under those statutes, it is not, what I'll put in air quotes, normal business. I'll just, you know, for example, if you are a president of a local bank, and you wanted to take a client out to dinner, and an uh, expensive dinner, and talk about uh, how the business is going and how you would like to have more business from that client, uh, you can do so and not run afoul of any rules and regulations. However, in healthcare, if a CEO of a hospital took out a physician and told a physician, my intent in taking you out to dinner is to hopefully encourage, induce, Coerce you to refer more to us—that is a criminal violation under the anti-kickback statute—and I would end up in part two of the board member series, I'll talk more granularly about the various statutes that do apply and we do not expect board members to know the granular details of all these rules and regulations Uh, but you need to have a working awareness of what they are so that way that you can ask the responsible individuals like the chief executive officer, the uh, general counsel, the compliance officer, questions about how they are complying with these various rules and regulations. So first, I'm going to give you a saga of three hospitals and what happened to those hospitals as well as the board, so you can see that this is stuff that you as board members should really be concerned about. And the first case is the Toomey case, and the Toomey is a hospital system in Sumter, South Carolina. And they had a QUITAM relator, so this is somebody who felt that something was wrong with their physician financial arrangements, filed a lawsuit on behalf of the government. That's what's called a QUITAM. A QUITAM relator is someone who... Uh, Files a lawsuit on behalf of the government, and they can receive somewhere between fifteen and twenty-five percent of what the government collects. So there's a big payday if there's a big payout with respect to these cases. Uh, So this was a case that the Qui Tam relator, who was a physician, actually filed a case, and that the case was actually filed in two thousand five. And this case was not settled until 2015, so this case lasted for 10 years. That's another question I get asked frequently is, how long can we expect a resolution? Well, in some of these cases, like the Toomey case, it was a 10-year saga. And some of the major points here is that the there's a series of employment arrangements. These were employment part-time employment arrangements where the hospital was attempting to capture through these part-time employment arrangements the outpatient surgical services because a competing surgery center was being established in the local community. So the hospital is a defensive, again, think business, a defensive tactic was saying, well, in order to compete, then let's employ these surgeons as part-time and pay these physicians part-time for the services that they perform in our outpatient facility. Well, Ultimately, uh, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld, and pull tight for this number, $237 million verdict. million verdict. And this was more than one year of net revenues for this local hospital, $237 million. And so, and in fact, one of the appeals was that from a constitutional perspective, this was an unconstitutional fine or penalty because the numbers were so large and the court held that no, it was not too large so basically what was alleged that every single referral from these physicians because they had what was deemed to be an inappropriate compensation arrangement with these physicians. Every referral that they made was tainted, meaning it was a bad referral, uh, because under the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law, these are billing-related statutes. That's what the fine and penalties are. So they said there were 21,370 false claims, so that's every claim the hospital submitted that was referred from these physicians, And they tacked on, under the False Claims Act, not only did they treble the amount, that's three times the amount of the actual damages. The actual damages were about $40 million in just the straight referrals. So they trebled that amount. Plus, under the False Claims Act, they added $5,500, which is the statutory minimum penalty. Nowadays, it goes up to $23,600. Uh, per claim submitted. And that's the reason why it got so large. And this hospital relied on two attorneys, one that said that the deals were inappropriate. The other uh, attorney said that they were uh, reasonable. Ultimately, and again, the case was filed in 2015. It was settled in I'm sorry, filed in 2005, and it was settled in 2015. Instead of the 237 million dollars, they settled and this is where board members need to be aware of this they ended up settling that case for 72.4 million. But the biggest issue in the Toomey case was that it was a requirement as part of the settlement that Toomey sold its assets to another multi-hospital system based in Columbia, South Carolina called Palmetto. And so not only did the hospital have to pay back $72.4 million, but they lost local control of that hospital through a forced divestiture uh, through a sale of assets to another hospital system. Then briefly two other cases, the one case that brought me into uh, healthcare law was St. Joe Regional Medical Center in South Bend, Indiana a case brought by one physician that was on the medical staff. I'm not going to go through those details because I've done that before in another episode. But ultimately, in that case, uh, two physicians went to jail. One went to jail for two years. The other went to jail for three years. Uh, The hospital system signed a corporate integrity agreement, and that's usually the end result of most of these cases. Hospitals will sign a mandated five-year compliance program for which not only is the Office of the Inspector General, as is like the FBI for the Department of Health and Human Services, but the Office of the Inspector General will monitor that compliance program and the organization will be forced to file annual reports indicating their compliance. And if they fall outside of compliance for every single day, usually under most corporate integrity agreements, if they are outside of compliance with any term of the corporate integrity agreement, That could be a penalty of anywhere from $2,500 per day up to $25,000 per day. So St. Joe was under a corporate integrity agreement, and I was brought in-house to serve as their organizational integrity officer as well as their general counsel. Uh, I held both positions, would not do that today. I would only go in as their uh, compliance officer or integrity officer. But so that that was another case, and that was a case in the late 90s, And another more recent case was the Halifax Health case from Daytona Beach, Florida, and that was a case, again, with a physician financial arrangements not complying from a structural perspective uh, with the terms and conditions of the Stark Law, as well as there was allegations about there were audits that occurred for which the results of the audits, if there were identified overpayments, those overpayments were not paid, ultimately Halifax uh, entered into a settlement agreement for $86 million, and Halifax is a safety net taxable hospital in Florida. So they settled for $86 million, five-year corporate integrity agreement, and also they were mandated to bring in a compliance expert to the board, and I was engaged uh, through Halifax and approved by the Office of the Inspector General to be the compliance expert to the Board of Commissioners so my client in for a five-year period was the board and I advised the board with respect to the compliance of the organization not only with its internal compliance program but also with the terms and conditions of the corporate integrity agreement so it gives you some idea from a board perspective you know three different cases uh, large negative outcomes that occurred so the Toomey case $72 $72 million and they had to sell their assets, lost local control. St. Joe, uh, they, it was a criminal indictment. Two doctors went to jail, five-year corporate integrity agreement. Then Halifax Health, eighty-six million million, uh, 5 five-year corporate integrity agreement. And also they had a mandated compliance expert to the board, which was me, uh, that was monitoring their compliance program. So the purpose of this part one for board members is kind of to describe what board members should be looking for with respect to their compliance program. The compliance of an organization, and the OIG says this very clearly, is the responsibility of the board. The buck stops with the board. So ultimately, for you who are board members, you are fully responsible in the eyes of the government with the monitoring of your compliance program and also the existence of your compliance program. Now, just like other facets of your duties and responsibilities as a board member, you do not have to be personally involved in all the aspects of your organization's compliance program. You need to provide the oversight and the general direction of the compliance program. And so that's what I'm going to describe in the next 10 minutes is just the general Things a board member should know. Now there are seven components of what the government believes to be an effective compliance program. And I'll go through each of the seven. And there's an unwritten eighth, which I'll get to. Uh, so I'll go through those those seven, and then there'll be probably other episodes that I'll talk specifically regarding each one of them. So first off, the organization organization needs to have an identified designated compliance officer that is high enough in the organization who reports usually and this is the government's view reports to the chief executive officer with the ability to go directly to the board So it needs to be somebody who's well-trained with respect to the operation and implementation of a compliance program. And so the real question I'd be asking the board is, do you know who your chief compliance officer is? And has that individual reported to you regarding the function of the compliance program? And the best practice would be to have the compliance officer report at least quarterly uh, to the board uh, briefly regarding the compliance program, and I have a dashboard report that I have put together, and so for any of you board members who would like to have a copy of my board dashboard report, uh, just email me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to share that with you. It's kind of a red light, green light, so as a board member, you can go through, and if you see all green, things look Pretty good. Uh, if there are red indicators on that report, then obviously those are areas that the board needs to have some additional focus. Next is compliance policies and procedures. And hospitals and other healthcare organizations are great at having many policies and procedures. And I'm going to rattle off a list just to give you some flavor as to the type of issues that compliance policies should entail. So here's the list uh, advanced beneficiary notices auditing and monitoring including the annual audit work plan, charity care, coding accuracy and documentation standards, conflicts of interest including conflicts of interest for board members, a compliance hotline and how employees can report issues anonymously, the compliance program structure, Contracting authority, and that's sort of a big one, is who in the organization can actually sign documents and and obligate the organization to a financial arrangement. Corrective action plans, medical staff credentialing and privileging, discounting of services, especially services for referral uh, services, documentation and medical necessity, duty to report compliance issues. You can mandate that your employees actually report compliance issues and concerns. Next is the uh, Health Information Portability and Accountability Act, HIPAA, Privacy and Security. Next one is identification of overpayments and repayment obligations, internal investigation process. Another big one, non-retaliation and non-retribution, patient transfers between facilities if you're a multi-facility organization, regulatory requirements like the False Claims Act, (M.T.A.L.A.) that's the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, the anti-kickback statute, civil monetary penalties, and Stark Law, records management and retention, response to regulatory accreditation surveys, uh, responding to government investigations, risk assessments, root cause analysis process, and screening for excluded individuals through the OIG and also state excluded list. Next is education and training, and there's two parts to education and training. One is training employees and board members on the compliance program generally, but also uh, training on high-risk areas. So, like, if I'm a coder, then I need to know generally about our compliance program, but also I need to have training on the coding requirements by the various payers, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, third-party payers. And usually there's also new employee orientation. Uh, and for board members, board members need to know both. Also, they, they need to know about just generally the compliance program, but also what are the major risk areas and focusing primarily on the risk areas under the legal requirements for the anti-kickback statute Stark Law False Claims Act. And the, the major purpose of that is just to make sure that the, the training is effective. And this can be done through talking heads, Uh, through some type of uh, internet uh, training, uh, webinars, and the like. Next, board members need to be aware of the auditing and monitoring programs. Usually, like on my dashboard report, I would have how the organization has monitored in the past three months, uh, how many audits occurred, what is the accuracy rate, what type of overpayments, and the like. And also, anytime that there's an annual audit report, Plan approved an annual audit plan that an annual audit plan should go before a board or a committee of the board for approval and assessment the next one so this is the fifth item for an effective compliance program is disciplinary guidelines Uh, Are there disciplinary policies for infractions that occur with respect to noncompliance with the compliance program? And so you want to make sure that there are indicators that if there are certain violations, either enhanced training for that employee, uh, you can put that employee on probation, administrative suspension, or also termination if if the compliance violation is severe enough. Next is open reporting of compliance issues, usually a hotline and, and this is really where whenever I do a compliance effectiveness assessment for organizations, this is all about culture. Does the organization have a culture of encouraging and promoting people to ask questions? And, and as I said with one of the policies, a lot of times, and, and this was actually an example that I had, I went into a board to do a compliance effectiveness review. and One of the board members said, we must have a very effective compliance program because we have had zero hotline reports over the past year. And I looked at him and I said, well, one of two things, either they fear retaliation, so there's a culture of fear within the organization, or the organization's not promoting the hotline telephone number or the reporting process within the organization so depending upon the size of the organization there are certain parameters depending upon the the size and the scope and and the complexity of the organization to give sort of an assessment i can do an assessment of an organization about how many hotline calls that they should be receiving if if it's appropriately promoted and there's a culture of uh, of reporting these type of concerns and when you promote the compliance program you you want to do it in a recognizable and hopefully a fun way and when i was in house and i developed the cartoon character captain integrity and we have performed compliance education using Uh, comic strips and you can go to the Captain Integrity website and basically we use Captain Integrity just like Ronald McDonald uh, for McDonald's or Snoopy for MetLife. It's just a a symbol uh, that this is coming from the compliance program. So what I did and some clients around the country are doing, they're using Captain Integrity as the symbol of the compliance program. Then they Put that Captain Integrity with the cartoon strips to provide that compliance education for the employees. You don't have to use Captain Integrity, it's actually a good resource, but you can use any other kind of symbol that is culturally appropriate for your organization to promote and enhance. And all of this is just to try to detect potential offenses. Because as a board, you want to make sure that employees are reporting issues to the organization so we can actually research and review those issues and take corrective action versus forcing the employee to go to the government and become a tam relator, Because that gets very expensive, just like in the Toomey case, as well as the Halifax case, multi-millions of dollars were spent on attorneys defending those cases. And then the unwritten, so this is the 8th component of an effective compliance program is have you, as a board, evaluated the effectiveness of your compliance program? I do a lot of this around the country, where I go in and I have a regimented report. In fact, at Halifax, I had to do that every other year, is I had to drill down into the effectiveness of the compliance program and give an overall assessment and a grade, and then that was delivered to the office, of the Inspector General, through the annual report. So from a board member, so this gets into the Captain Integrity Punch Point. So Captain Integrity Punch Point number one, are you receiving as a board member information that you as a board member feel comfortable that your organization is implementing each of these seven components of an effective compliance program? Captain Integrity Punch Point number two is are you as a board member receiving training on compliance, both training regarding the structure and how the organization is implementing the compliance program, but also general training on what you need to know in the medical field that are high-risk areas for your organization. Again, that will be part two of these episodes for board members, focusing on the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, and also the False Claims Act. And then Captain Integrity, punch point number three is, are you as board members receiving information at your board meetings regarding updates of the operation of your compliance program, are you receiving a live report from the compliance officer or a dashboard report that you can assess each of these seven areas or the eighth if you do a compliance effectiveness review? Uh, are you receiving information that you can be assured as a board member that your organization is a, has a fully functional and effective compliance program? I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity. The Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law or Healthcare Compliance, you can contact me at captain CaptainIntegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at CaptainIntegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.